please join me in opening up your Bible to Philippians chapter 3. That's page 981 in a Blue Pew Bible. We'd love to have you follow along with us there if you do not have your own Bible. As we continue in our series, marching through this letter to the church at Philippi. I have a question. Do you have anyone in your life who is notorious for going on tangents when you talk to them? If you are sitting next to that person right now, just blink twice and look straight ahead. All right, I see you. I see you. We all know about tangents. Someone is telling a story. They are recounting their day. And something they say triggers a thought in their mind, and they think about something else, and they go on a tangent. And you know it's a great tangent or a terrible tangent, however you look at it, when they get to the end of the tangent and they inevitably say, what were we talking about? What was this conversation about? And at that point, you have to decide, do I actually want to tell them, or do you find the exit strategy out of this conversation? Um, but it, it's not just in others. We all go on tangents from time to time. But it's important to note that not all tangents are created equal. Some, and maybe most, are never-ending rabbit trails that add nothing to the conversation, but others can actually be very helpful. They can add value to what they're saying. And so this weird introduction to a sermon is to say this. I say that not all tangents are created equal because I think our passage this morning is a Holy Spirit-inspired tangent. It's a perfect tangent, if you will. And if we connect the dots to what Paul has been doing, we saw at the beginning of chapter 3 last week when he said, finally. And he seems like he's starting to indicate the start of the conclusion of this letter. And he goes about writing, and he gets to verse 11. And I think in verse 11, a thought triggers in his mind, which gets him to verse 12 that begins a tangent. So our passage in our sermon this morning, I think, is one big tangent, and we need it. So the verses we're going to cover is verses 12 through 21, but I want to start in verse 10 to help hopefully kind of show this. Um, so we're going to start by reading verses 10 through 16 of chapter 3. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Do you notice the pivot between verses 11 and 12? And at first glance, what he said there in verses 12 through 16 seem like they contradict what he said in last week's passage. But I hope to show you this morning that this is no contradiction, for there are no contradictions in the Bible. But rather, it's a careful distinction. 
Not a contradiction, but a distinction that builds a bridge between uh, Christian theology and Christian living. Between what we're called to believe and then what we're called to do. So if you weren't here last week or maybe you forget from last week, um, a quick recap. Paul was reminding the church of Philippi that he puts no confidence in what he does. He puts no confidence in who he is. He puts no confidence in his own flesh. But rather that salvation is not in ourselves. It's solely in the work of Jesus Christ. And whatever we count in our lives as work is loss when it comes to gaining Christ. And so that comes from faith alone in Christ alone. And this happens, but we just read verse 10, so that we may know him. Not know about him, not just know of him on some level, but that we might know him. We might have a personal, daily relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That we might know him. And that we might attain the resurrection of the dead. We might attain that finished work. That's how we ended it last week. And so you get this kind of theological framework, very important. We love theology here at Grace Church. Doctrine matters, right belief matters. God has revealed himself in his word. And understanding what salvation is, that points to a relationship. And then I feel like Paul pauses. And he pauses because at this point, there is a common and dangerous misapplication of that truth he just proclaimed. And so he goes on a tangent. Verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So here's the misunderstanding he's afraid of. Here's the one he's hyper aware of, that people might fall into once they understand that salvation is purely upon what Jesus Christ has done. That after that moment, your Christian life becomes a cakewalk. Or at least it should, if your faith is strong enough. So, were you struggling with sin before Christ? Once you come to Christ, it's over. You're good. It's gone. Is there some circumstance in your life that is less than ideal? Well, when you come to Christ, it's all going to be solved. Or you can be like, whatever, I don't even care. Because I'm with Jesus now. That this life doesn't matter at all. I have no emotions at all. Water off my back. And when that inevitably does not happen, we think the problem's with us. Oh, we're doing this wrong. We don't really understand this. It should be easier than this. I mean, look at Paul. It's just so easy for him. But I'm never going to get there. Maybe I'm not a Christian after all. And I think this is a mental cycle that we drive ourselves crazy in. I think it's something that can exist in all believers. I think I especially see it in new believers. If you remember back to when you were a new believer... There's an initial rush of joy in this newfound belief. It's the best news in the world. But then there's a moment where you realize, wait a minute, I still have struggles. That sin I was entangled in before getting saved, it's still there. The circumstances that bother me, they still bother me. Even though I know it's not the end of the story but I'm still bothered by them. So, so maybe, man, maybe this wasn't all real. Maybe, or I think I should just be further along than this. Maybe it's me. And you can kind of look around in a church like this and you're like, everyone kind of looks like they have it all together. 
Is anyone else struggling? I feel like I'm drowning here, but everyone else just seems fine. And it's an inability at its core to connect right belief with the Christian life. And so Paul's tangent, I think, really helps us here and praise God for it because I think we need it. And he knows in writing this to the church that their view of him is probably a little too high. Their view of him is probably a little too lofty. And he wants them to know, I'm actually one of you. I'm a sinner saved by grace. And so he immediately says, I'm not perfect. And then he uses this language, very calculated words. He goes, I press on. And I'm straining forward. And again, he says, I press on. And he says, the Christian life man, it is a battle, even for Paul. About a year ago, I got a question from a member at Grace Church who had been coming for a while and made the observation after sitting under preaching here for a period of time. So, Pastor, you, uh, you tend to be really self-deprecating when you preach. Notice that generally when I talk about myself, I don't really shed myself in the best light. I make fun of myself often, and, and they were just interested, generally, go, why do you do that? And I didn't have a great answer at first. I mean, I wanted to say, like, I just have a lot of great content to make fun of myself for. Like, it's not that hard. But, but in thinking about it, um, I, don't, I hope it's not to like, show some feigned humility. But rather, as a senior pastor, I know that the default perception of me is probably going to be too high. I'm literally standing above, preaching down. And so there's this default perception that I am or either think I am up here. And you guys are down here. And that is not true. And so I think that's one of the reasons that if I'm going to talk about myself, I often want to help show you that I am very much one of you. That I'm not reading through the Bible ten times a year. And I'm not praying 12 hours a day. And I'm not that lofty. And those who know me best in this church, there's several who knew me very well before I came into the ministry, they don't need to be told that. They know that full well. You know who knows it best? Rochelle. And my kids. And I want to show that I am out here battling in the Christian life. Like I'm fighting for it. And it is a struggle in so many ways, and I am clinging to the grace of God to make it to the end. And at the same time, do I feel like, um, according to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 2, that I'm biblically qualified to be a pastor elder? I do, but hear me very clearly. Pastors and elders need the grace of God to keep them and sustain them just as much as the new believer. So, I don't know, maybe that's why I tend to do that. I also have a lot of great content to make a fun of myself with. <laughs> but what I do know is that this gospel that I preach week in and week out, through every passage that we're in, it is merely an outflow of what I'm preaching to myself all week. Like, I am in the trenches. I have not already obtained this, but I'm confident I will. Not because of me, but because of the back half of verse 12. Look down at your Bible again. It's the most important phrase in this whole passage. That we can have confidence 
to make him our own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Our ability to persevere in obedience is grounded in the promise of the gospel that Christ Jesus has taken hold of us. He initiates in this whole dance. He is in control. We love him because he first loved us. We obey him because he has equipped us to do so, fueled by grace. And from here, I think Paul's tangent gets towards the climax where he says, church, there's one thing I do. Don't underestimate this. Of all the things in the Christian life that we think about, of all the clutter that gets in your mind day in and day out, what should I do? What shouldn't I do? It can be very confusing. It can be like different shades of gray. Paul says, I'm going to clear that out and give you, as an example, one thing I do. And he's sneaky because there's kind of three parts to it. But he kind of sets it up for the one thing. And it's past and it's present and it's future. Or rather, it's past, future, present. Number one, forgetting what lies behind. Here's one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind. And this is a certain, specific kind of forgetting. It's not just in general. I just forget everything. You can't forget God in the Christian life. You can't forget doctrine or scripture. We need to remember those things. And the Bible is constantly telling us, remember, remember, remember. We're going to take communion today at the end of the service. And the whole idea of communion is to remember. So Paul must mean a certain specific kind of forgetting. And the kind he's talking about is his own past achievements and failures in his life. He's going to forget his own past achievements and his own past failures. Here's why. If he dwelled on his achievements, all the good things he's done, he'll get puffed up with pride. And when you get puffed up with pride in Christian life, you tend to drift from a dependence on the Lord. Because you know what? You've done good. Real good. Paul, man, he planted a lot of churches. Discipled a lot of good people. Raised up a lot of good leaders. And if he dwelled on that, there would be a natural drift from a dependence on the Lord that he needs. Or if he dwelled on past failures, he would get so dejected over how much of a failure he is and how much regret he has and how many terrible things he's done that those past regrets will hold him captive and prevent him from experiencing joy in Christ. Here's what Paul is saying. You cannot move forward if you're looking back. This morning, as many of you are aware, is the New York City Marathon. I'm sure like me, you would have been running it if you didn't have to go to church. <laughs> Glad you're here. But if you're a runner, if you're a sprinter, if you ever have an experience with that, what's rule number one in running? Never look back in a race. It will always slow you down. It will always knock you off your route. No one ever got faster by looking back. So whether you're prone to look back on all the great things that you've done, if you're a person who looks back in your Christian life and you go, I used to do a lot of great things, and you say used to a lot, beware 
of what that's keeping you from doing in the moment. Or if you're prone to look back and just beat yourself up over all the bad things you've done, beware. Because neither will serve you well in the Christian life. That's number one. Number two, straining toward what lies ahead. So you're not looking back. So what are you doing? You're fixing your eyes on the prize. Paul's using this language. And the prize being Christ himself. That the, the best part of being saved now in this world and then being fully saved in glory is that we gain Christ. Not just the benefits that might come with Christ, but Christ himself, where we finally, in connection to last week, know him. We finally know him in full. That is where our eyes are fixed upon. Last year for our blog that we have on our church website, we put a new post up each week. There's a team of us. I wrote a blog last year about a phrase I heard my brother say while coaching one of his classes at the CrossFit gym that he owns and coaches at. And the phrase he gave us was, watch your eyes. And it was while he was uh, demoing an Olympic lift where he said, in any lift you're trying to do, watch where your eyes go because they're crucial. If you let your eyes drop off a target, your body loses tension and you'll probably fail the lift. So keeping your eyes on the same target the entire time holds attention in your core and gives you the strength to try and do what you're aiming to do, to complete the lift. And I remember sitting there at this 5 a.m. class and just being like, I've heard him say this over and over and over again. I'm just going, yes. Like, that's it. No one in the class was excited with me on this, by the way. All right, I was alone here. But like, it clicked to me. Like, that's exactly what the Bible tells us in the Christian life. Keep your eyes on Christ. Keep your eyes on the target because that is what keeps your so-called core strong. And that is what will equip you to live the life you are aiming to live as a believer. Having your eyes on Christ and what lies ahead, gaining him, will not make you check out out of life here. It's not the point. You might have heard the saying, don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. Have you heard that? Like a right view of the prize and attaining it in the future will spur us now in the life and hyper-focus us now. C.S. Lewis famously wrote this. He said, if you, find, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become ineffective in this one. And then his famous line, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. We in the church, whether we're sending people down to Mendenhall, whether we're doing Box of Love or Operation Christmas Child, locally, regionally, globally, we want to have an impact. We don't just want to talk to each other all the time. We want to band together and have an impact. And the best impact we will have as a church in this world will be if our eyes are fixed upon gaining Christ in the future. There was a woman uh, who passed away four years ago, four or five years ago. Uh, many of you know her. Her name was Margaret Bisworm. One of, I think, the founding families of Grace Church. Two of her sons, Rich and Dave, are still members here. 
And there was, a young, there was a small group that Rochelle and I were in as young adults with Margaret. We were by far the youngest in the group, um, in our mid-20s, newly married. Margaret, at this point, was in her early to mid-90s. And something that she would say, and it sticks with me, and remember it sticks with Rochelle and I, because she said it often, where she would say in complete honesty, she just loved Jesus more than anybody ever knew. And she just woke up in the morning, her husband had passed away long ago, she would ask the Lord, why am I still here? I kind of just want to be in heaven. And, and, and yet she would say, and she said every morning she would repeat this to herself, Lord, I woke up today. What do you have for me today? I don't know why I'm still here, but I'm here. So what do you want me to do? It was a view of the future, a desire of the future that hyper-focused her purpose for today. And it hit me there as a newly married guy in his young 20s who isn't thinking about the future. I'm all about the present and just trying to climb and do whatever I'm trying to do. And I remember in that moment, like, that's still true for me. All we're all given is today. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. And so we can be like Margaret to say, Lord, I'm here. What do you got for me today? That's finding purpose in the mundane. Which leads to the third Press on toward the goal. If we forget what lies behind, we strain forward to what's ahead, we're able to do the one thing Paul says he commits himself to in this world. Press on. The motto for your Christian life. Press on. Here's the distinction, again, not the contradiction from last week. Hear me closely. I probably should put this on the screen. Here's the main point of the sermon. Truly resting in Christ in your belief, provides the fuel to press on towards Christ in your life. Truly resting in Christ in your belief provides the fuel to press on toward Christ in your life. Pressing on is this pursuit of just wanting to know him more, of just continually wanting to go deeper, of growing that relationship and letting the fruit of that relationship be made evident in your life. Uh, one commentator wrote this as it's this constant cycle in our life of dissatisfaction, satisfaction. Dissatisfied in our knowledge of him, satisfied in his work for us. And we're constantly weaving in and out between those two things in our life. Uh, another pastor coins the term holy discontentment to describe what Paul is talking about here. Now we just want to know him more. We want to pursue him more. I, I talk about this often with couples in our premarital counseling that the idea of pursuing your spouse even after you get married. Because there's this notion that the pursuit happens in the dating phase. And then the wedding is the end. But the wedding is actually the beginning. The beginning of this lifelong journey of pursuing one another. Of wanting to know more of one another. Of longing to know more. And so I'll always challenge husbands, date your wife. I didn't think of that. There's a book called Date Your Wife. Justin Holcomb, it's great. Anyway, um, pressing on toward Christ is this ever-present battle against sin that remains in our lives. That's what it means to pursue Christ, striving to produce the fruit of the Spirit in our life, to love others well, so others might see us, but then glorify His name in heaven. And so what does that actually look like? Press on. What's that look like? I, I think no theologian has helped me more in this than J.I. Packer the author of Knowing God, another great book you should read. And he takes this truth and he applies it. What does it look like to press on? 
And so rather than just paraphrase him, I want to read his quote. It's going to be on the screen. It's a little long, but I want you to dial in here. This gives clear direction to a clear and consistent strategy for our encounter with sin and temptation. As Packer explains it, our living should accordingly be made up of sequences having the following shape. We begin by considering what we have to do or need to do, recognizing that without divine help, we can do nothing as we should. We confess to the Lord our inability and ask that help be given. Then, confident that prayer has been heard and help will be given, we go to work. And having done what we could, we thank God for the ability to do as much as we did and take the discredit for whatever was still imperfect and inadequate, asking forgiveness for our shortcomings and begging for power to do better next time. In this sequence, there is room neither for passivity nor for self-reliance. On the contrary, we first trust God and then on the basis work as hard as we can and repeatedly find ourselves enabled to do what we knew we could not have done by ourselves. That's what it looks like to press on on a Monday morning, on a Wednesday evening, on a Saturday afternoon. One thing we do. Let's finish the passage. I've got to be quick here. Verse 17, we're going to go through chapter 4, verse 1. Brothers, join me in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Very quickly, Paul has given lots of good examples of what to do in the Christian life, but he's also going to provide bad examples. And we know in life, good examples and bad examples can both be helpful in equipping us to do what God has called us to do. And Paul warns the church that the road away from Christ is a wide one. And it's a common one. And it's a popular one. And he says, for many including those whose stories bring him to tears, choose a life of living for their own glory over God's. Something Paul is referring to those who were once members of the church of Philippi, who have since walked away, who had once you know, claimed Christ as their savior, but they deserted the faith. So we don't know for sure, but we do know is that these people mean something to Paul. They mean something to the people at Philippi. These are not just people out in the world. These are close family and friends that with tears they are watching them go down a road of destruction. And first and foremost, it brings them tears because it dishonors God. Because the end is their destruction. When you resist the cross, when you resist saving grace, you become self-sufficient. And in that way, you get exactly what you ask for. Eternal separation from God. That's called hell. And it's tragic. And you get what you asked for. And their God is their belly and their glory is their shame. And there's just a love for the world that supersedes a love for God. 
that they did not love him enough. They might have known about him and known of him and at one point claimed him, but they did not love him enough to, to deny the desires of the flesh. They loved sin too much. And the reason that we all know is because sin is fun. And sin brings some level of happiness in the short term, which is why it's so difficult to resist it. But sin always tastes sweet on the lips, but then sits heavy in the stomach. And so be careful in justifying giving in to fleshly desires while trying to maintain a pursuit of Christ. The two are incompatible. And again, we're all battling here. Like none of us have attained it yet. We're all battling. We haven't arrived. But just be careful of convincing yourself that there's a certain sin in your life that's no big deal. Yeah, it's not ideal, but God will understand. The sign of a healthy Christian life is not one that is without sin, because none of us are there. But it's a hatred of sin. And so persevere in not compromising. Be willing to listen to a fellow member who might approach you with the concern that they see. Don't be too fast to shoo them away and call them judgmental. Maybe God's using that as a means of grace to bring something into the light. He gives us good examples to follow. He gives us bad examples to avoid. And then he gives us this final promise and command. This idea that we are citizens in heaven. That this is how it ends. That this is not our home. And he fixes our gaze once again on the future. On the prize. We hear a lot in our culture about the right side of history. That we all want to be on the right side of history. Oftentimes a culture will use that as a club, especially for Christians. Like if you don't get in line with this one social topic, you will not be on the right side of history. Well, as Christians, we cling to the promise that for those in Christ, we will be vindicated as the ones on the right side of history. And the judge of that is Christ himself. And to him alone we give our full surrender to by his blood, which we will behold the elements in a few moments to think about that. By his blood, we cling to him as Savior, we submit to him as Lord, the name above all names. And with all this, he finishes in chapter 4, verse 1, this line of thought with, stand firm. As we're in the midst of football season, there's a very common phrase in football circles, the best defense is a good what? Offense. Meaning the best way to not give up points is to not be on the field. And your offense is on the field. And if they're on the field the majority of the game, the defense looks good. The best defense, you see, is a good offense. But the reality is, both in football and in the Christian life, both a good offense and defense are needed to win it all, to get the prize. Paul gives us both the offense and the defense. Press on and stand firm. And in doing this, you will get Christ, the ultimate prize. Paul just went on a tangent. It's not the tangent we asked for, but it's the tangent we needed. Let's pray.